I'm the doctor, by the way. You're listening to Pieces of Eighth, the Doctor Who podcast that's not at its end, and in our fourth season, we're still only just beginning. As ever, we're here to look to explore those sections of the Doctor Who universe that feature the incarnation of the Time Lord, as played by Paul McGann. I'm Rebecca Chapman. And I'm Kenny Smith. And you join us as we resume our quest to feature the Eighth Doctor's exploits, whether on screen, in books, novellas, full cast audios, short stories, comics, animations, talking books, magazines, sticker books, and a cyber controller's car. Sorry, sorry, what is a cyber controller's car? <laughs> well, you may remember that in the episodes with the cyber controller and the parallel earth, the rise of the Cybermen in the Age of Steel, we saw the Cybermen and the cyber controller, mm-hmm. and the controller had his throne, and at no point did he have a car. This is okay. a, a really, it's a bizarre piece of really weird, unofficial Doctor Who merchandising that I, I only saw once. It was in a stall in Salou in Spain back in, what, 2010, 2011? And it was basically just a normal car with stickers on the side saying, Doctor Who! And a picture of David Tennant holding up the sonic screwdriver pointing at the camera, and a picture of the cyber controller. And it was marketed for sale as the cyber controller's car. Mm. <laughs> as in, what the hell? Yeah, no, that is very odd. <laughs> so yeah, it's very, very, very strange. I've never seen it since, I think it's, I think it would have been quite fun to have, but I'm sure they'll probably pop up on eBay now and again. But um, yeah, unofficial Doctor merchandise. But there's, I don't know if there's any unofficial Paul McGann-related merchandise. Listeners, if you know of any, let us know. Send us a tweet. Yes, please do. At Pieces of Eighth. We'd love to hear. Anyway, let's uh, move on to today's episodes. Until a couple of episodes back, we hadn't looked at any big finish at all in this run. And then on Halloween, we covered The Red Lady. And we didn't look at her because if we had, we'd be dead. Um, <laughs> and bizarrely, we hadn't featured any full cast, big finish audios at all this season until then. Indeed, we hadn't. And like buses, you wait ages for one. Are you okay? Mm-hmm. Oh, um, it looked like you were you were surprised. <laughs> no, no, I was I was listening to you intently and just. Hmm. Uh, oh, it's good. Oh, it's good. <laughs> And like buses, you wait ages for one, then two arrive one after the other. Today we're taking a look at the end of the beginning, which appropriately enough marks the end of the Doctor Who monthly range from Big Finish, in release number 275, released in March 2021. That's quite incredible. That's already nearly two years ago. I know, I know. Could you give us a bit of background as to why it ended, and some insights into the story? Because I'm pretty convinced that it had some parallels with the first Big Finish Doctor Who release. You're absolutely right there, yeah. Um, it was felt that, with the main range having 275 releases in it, if somebody new arrived as a as a newcomer to Big Finish, as you've been there yourself, and you see there's this range with 270-odd releases in it, then you're going to think, oh dear, that's a bit off-putting. <laughs> so that sort of necessitated the change to the new box sets that Big Finish has been doing, so you're getting... Like they've been doing with the Eighth Doctor for years with Dark Eyes 1, 2, 3, 4 and everything else like that. 
and now they're getting names rather than numbers so you're getting these sets now they just have a title like um, the sixth doctor water worlds ones like that so it doesn't put you off to think you've missed out on something that's going there before so with a marketing head on it makes complete sense to do that but at the same time it's also a shame because there are so many amazing stories in that monthly range not least of which are even there are even amazing non-eighth doctor stories i should clarify that but um yeah it's uh it's a good range and it is a real shame but yes the end of the beginning has parallels with the sirens of time as they feature multiple doctors and a foe in fact Becca, let's have a quick read of what the Big Finish website has to say about the end of the beginning and the first story, The Sirens of Time. So, after you. Of course. Hang on a second. (laughs) (laughs) The universe is in a state of crisis, facing destruction from the results of a strange spatio-temporal event, and the Doctor is involved in three different incarnations, each caught up in a deadly adventure scattered across time and space. The whole of creation is threatened, and someone is hunting the Doctor. The three incarnations of the Doctor must join together to confront their implacable pursuer. But in doing so, will they unleash a still greater threat? Now that's your one. So here's what Sirens of Time sounded like in its blurb. Gallifrey is in a state of crisis, facing destruction at the hands of an overwhelming enemy. And the Doctor is involved in three different incarnations, each caught up in a deadly adventure, scattered across time and space. The web of time is threatened, and someone wants the Doctor dead. The three incarnations of the Doctor must join together to set time back on the right track, but in doing so, will they unleash a still greater threat? So yes, there is a quite a, a few parallels there between these synopses, and it's very cleverly done that, and well done to whoever it was that wrote that. Probably probably Matt Fitton, I would imagine, if it wasn't him, Rob, who wrote this story. But anyway, would you like to hear a trailer, Becca? I would like to hear a trailer, actually, Kenny. Thank you very much. <laughs> From Big Finish Productions. It was the end of everything. Finally, I realized the purpose for which I had been chosen. I declared war on the universe. Doctor. Charlo. Before we die, can we at least agree that this was all your fault? If it makes you happier. Not really. The city. It is said to house a great jewel known as the Zalam. The darkness. Good grief. By all that's holy. Don't be alarmed. This is simply an artifact of another civilization. It's a lot more impressive than yours, isn't it? Size isn't everything. Well, Mrs. Clark, welcome to Huygensend Spaceport. Life is fast and short in these parts, so be careful. Sounds like the Wild West. From my obsidian throne in the Fortress of Night, I assembled the means to begin my war. Doctor, Mrs. C, welcome aboard the Black Star. Charming, I'm sure. I am a Time Lord. A Time Lord? Ooh, is that supposed to impress me? They're following us. Can we outrun them? They've taken out my starboard thruster. Doctor, you better think of something. Oh, rather dark, isn't it? Don't worry, love. You'll be safe with me. 
There's a new child of the night in town. Another one like you? When I started selling off my paintings, I thought I was being completely discreet. I should hope so, Highgate. Artists do usually tend to stop painting once they're dead. Oh, oh no. We might very well be standing on all that's left of, you know... Yeah, the lost moon of Batoya. Doctor. Hello, Doctor. And Charlie, isn't it? You remember Tello? Is that really a future version of you? Indeed it is. Oh, you become awfully... Um, what? Tasteful. There is a legend, a prophecy, if you will, of a great unravelling. And it's said to have started here. To me, it sounds more like a weapon. No wonder the ancients hid it. In the wrong hands, it would be a terrible thing. What have you done? Isn't it obvious, my boy? I've started it up! Big finish. We love stories. <laughs> Funny thing, time travel, isn't it? Well, that was really good. It is it a really good story. Yeah. Yeah. So you spoke recently with its writer Rob Valentine, didn't you? I certainly did. Rob's a fab writer and Smashing Fella too. And I would hugely recommend you check out his work on the unit Brave New World series if you've enjoyed this one. It'd be a huge shame if you didn't. There's a little joke there. It'd be a huge shame. There you go. There's one for all the Brigadier Bambera fans. <laughs> so it's time to meet Rob the writer. Can he write it? Rob, Rob the writer. Yes, he can. <laughs> Uh, hello, my name's Rob Valentine, and I'm a writer. And I write stuff for Big Finish. Oh yeah, um, the one that what I wrote that we're talking about today is the end of the beginning, which was the the final story in the main range. Well, let's turn the clock back to 1996. Do you recall where you were when you heard that Paul McGann had been cast as the Doctor? Um, I don't recall where I was. I, I was at school and I was probably, uh, I think I had GCSEs the next, yeah, coming up, I reckon. But my first memory, well, rather my first knowledge that he was going to be the uh, the Eighth Doctor, I think came with his, uh, there was a, a press release and his first photo shoot, which I think they did at Longleat when he had the uh, the cropped hair because he was playing a, was it, it wasn't Andy McNabby was playing, but I think it was an, it was an SAS thing, wasn't it? I can't, there was, Bravo there were two, two zero, at the time. I think I, it was. That was the one, yeah. And I just remember seeing his, um, his promo photos, and I thought it was just genius to have the Doctor with, with cropped hair in contemporary clothing. I thought, brilliant, this is so, this is so 1996. It's really cutting edge. What a great decision. And then, then I saw the photos actually for the upcoming TV movie, and there, there he was dressed as a sexy William Hartnell. And it's like, uh, okay, fine. <laughs> they got it. They got it right ten years later with Chris Reckleston. But I, my first impression was um, just thinking, oh yeah, they've yeah, this is cutting edge. This, this, this is how you do Doctor Who of the nineties. And uh, yeah, do you remember watching the movie for the first time? I do, but again, it's um, it was a long time ago now. Yeah, I I can't remember what my feeling was at the time, really, other than just um, kind of amazement that Doctor Who was back after what, in my relatively young life, felt like a huge long wait since 1989. And it had come back with 
um, a, a huge budget. Um, it was a big budget bit of TV for 1996. Um, yeah, so I was hugely excited. Um, and I think that was just kind of my, my prevailing feeling about it at the time. Yeah. Did you watch it at home? Almost certainly. I was almost certainly at home when I watched it, yeah. And I think I think I was, um, after it was over, um, pretty much immediately after it finished, I was kind of just, you know, hugely expectant for the inevitable TV series that was unquestionably about to uh, about to follow it. <laughs> Again, this was all this is a very analog time, so you know we knew nothing, you know, and any information you did get was via print media. So uh, it was, um, yeah, there was a lot of mystery around it, and there was a lot of mystery um, around what was going to happen off the back of it. Yes. We've mentioned uh, the beginning of McGann. So what about the beginning of Big Finish? Were you there at the beginning when Sirens of Time was released? I, I was. I was at university. I was in my second year at Aberystwyth, and uh, a friend of mine lent me the Sirens of Time on CD, which I then went. I then listened to on my portable CD player. That was because that was the that was the height of technology at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was so, yeah, I, I didn't become a big Finnish regular listener, but I was, I was definitely aware of big Finnish for a lot of years, but um, yeah, I, I did, however, hear Sirens of Time pretty much, you know, within weeks to months of its initial release. Yeah. It's funny how it's still a classic and it still stands up all these years later. And who would have thought that some 20 odd years later, there you would be, writing something that in many ways mirrors it and parallels it. So when did you get that call to say, would you like to do the final one of the main range and make it a multi-doctor? Um, yeah, it was, a, it, it was a very strange thing to happen because you can't plan for stuff like that in, you know, in, in life. Um, but um, I think um, David Richardson, I think, emailed me directly I can't remember when it was. It might have been 2019, but it was more likely... It might have been the end of 2019. It might have been 2020. I think it was 2019. I was in the middle of writing something else for Big Finish, and it was very much a kind of, oh, could you stop working on that for the moment? And Because we need this. So I was, yeah, I was asked by David if I could just write something that was like The Sirens of Time, basically. That was the brief. So uh, just a... a, a three episodes with one doctor each and then they all team up in episode four and so the first thing i did was just i went back and uh, re-listened to sirens of time for probably the first time in 20 years since listening to it in my student kitchen in in wales yeah so that was kind of so that was that was the gap but um so i just had to re- refresh my memory and then uh, and also i was told and it's going to be uh, peter davison in part one colin baker part two Paul McGann in part three, and then all of them. And that was, and that was it. Um, at that time, uh, Sylvester McCoy was not part of the discussion at all. That, so that was, my, that was my initial starting off point. Interesting, but uh, we'll come to that soon. It must have been quite exciting for you getting to do a multi-doctor story, given that you'd written quite a few big finished scripts by this point. But to get, uh, I think, to get a multi-doctor story is a biggie, isn't it? It's one of those things that everybody would like to take off their checklist. Yeah, it sort of is, but at the same time, it's it's a bit of a headache in some ways because it become it becomes often it becomes the raison d'etre for doing the whole thing. Right, and and I I kind of like using Doctor Who to 
explore other stuff. But when you have doctors meeting up, it becomes about Doctor, which is great. It's fun, but it's got its own particular set of problems and challenges that you kind of have to to overcome. But the the, the main one though was that um, then we did get word that uh, Sylvester McCoy was available for like four or five pages worth, so just a cameo. And uh, so I ended up having to kind of write the ending first, which is always another, and that's another set of problems and challenges. Because, um, you know, not, it, it, when you're writing, you always know when you're gonna, where you're going to end up, but um, there's always still room to uh, navigate and negotiate. But when you've got the ending kind of set in concrete, it, it's, a, it's a problem again. So it was, it was great fun, but there, there, were, there were fiddly things about it. Yeah. Now, at this point, you should say spoilers because we'll talk about a couple of plot things here. So if you've not listened to the story, please, people, go off, buy it, download it, listen to it, and then come back to this point here. Right, you're back. Lovely to hear you all again. Let's talk about creating the villain of the piece, the fact of Death Lord, with the fact that he's pursuing the Doctor's and it's not in the manner in which we expect. And it was such a wonderful twist. I actually laughed the first time I heard it. I just thought, brilliant. Oh, well, um, yeah. Um, listening back to Sirens of Time, I kind of, and uh, knowing that I kind of had to uh, provide a bookend for that at the other end of this 20 year series, you need just a plot pretext for it all to occur. And to be honest, I think the, the character who kind of became Vakras, Last of the Death Lords, was a character who'd been kind of in my head for maybe two or three years beforehand, just waiting for some work of fiction in which to exist. And so it just felt like the perfect story to have him. Basically, the concept of the character is someone who has decided that despite all life experience trying to tell him that there is no goodness, no decency, no love, compassion, no nothing, he's decided, well, as long as I have those things in me, then they do exist. So you know, if if they don't exist anywhere else, exist at least they you know at least they dwell in me. And that was kind of you know a very sweet concept of a, a character who is kind of fundamentally good, even if it's for kind of um, pig-headed and bloody-minded reasons. It's still you know, and there's a kind of, there's a built-in kind of character revelation with that. So I kind of knew that the character who would be kind of doing. A lot of the apparent villain duties and kind of shepherding the doctors in the right plot direction um, then gets to turn out to be kind of an ally and sidekick as well so uh yeah and um, vakras was you know he, he got that name kind of for this but uh, the idea behind him had kind of been in my drawer of random ideas for a bit yeah but how did you find writing for all the different incarnations of the doctor i mean particularly we've got the doctor and turtle we know from tv but then we have the Doctor and Mrs. Clark, and of course the Doctor and Charlie, and of course bringing back Calypso Jones as well with the Doctor and Mrs. Clark, which was just a lovely combo, and I love that relationship that they have, particularly as uh, Calypso was brilliantly played by Robin Holdaway. Oh no, Ro- Robin uh, is, is brilliant, and uh, it was great to have them back. But it, all, all the, the plot stuff and all the story ideas came out of the Doctors and the characters, so... Uh, with the fifth doctor and Turlow, because I was given not just the doctors, but also the companions for each. With the doctor and Turlow, it just, um, I think I was going through a bit of a, a Lawrence of Arabia rewatch, but um, the, fifth, the fifth doctor just kind of suits kind of period pieces and kind of the Edwardian era a lot. And I also kind of wanted to honor Sirens of Time a bit with a sort of a, 
sort of 1914 kind of that kind of setting so doing a kind of mesopotamian adventure with the doctor and camels and uh a colonial baddie and uh, uh bedouin culture and uh kind of slightly kind of pulp lost temple tropes just kind of it seemed like a good fit for the fifth doctor and also i'd only started working for big finish fairly recently so i was kind of thinking well this might be my only chance to write for any of these characters so i'll, I'll kind of do what i kind of think is the the, the epitome for each so kind of and, and so that's how the first part death in the desert kind of came about and uh, i still kind of feel it just as a half hour doctor who one-off i kind of i kind of love it of all of them, I kind of think that one is just full of my favourite things. And then um, with the Sixth Doctor one with Constance, kind of the Sixth Doctor to me, kind of his natural setting always seemed to be kind of space opera and stuff away from Earth. My actually, I came to the the Sixth Doctor originally through those little the, the comics that you know we, they came with cereal, if I recall. Um, I can't remember which. So what's it? Crisps, things that like was that. it. That was it. Yeah, I've still got that a few was of it. Yeah. So I think um, was it Invasion? Uh, there's one with Gold, side. There's a there's Golden some, Wonder. Some, yeah, they gave them away. It was the old DWM reprints. Yes, yes, there's, yes there was, yeah, there's one yeah. called Genesis. I think they all had sort of biblical sounding names. Yeah, with, oh, it was Revelation. It was Revelation yeah. is one of the ones I remember most. Yes, yeah, so that was kind of my, that was my first introduction to the Sixth Doctor. So I kind of wanted to kind of honour that kind of feeling with that. So, uh, so Flight of the Black Star um, and Eclipso's ship is, is is named after the Bowie album. Just in case, you, <laughs> just in case you cared, you know. Trivia's but, good. Um, yeah, so it, that kind of influence was to me has always been just felt very Sixth Doctor, and bringing back Calypso, just um, having having companions and people he's met before turn up just seems like a kind of a Sixth Doctor thing. So it just it just felt like a good excuse to kind of bring Calypso back as well. And then um, Night Gallery, the Eighth Doctor and Charlie story, and uh, it felt I felt very lucky to kind of write for them because that that felt like something that had uh, that felt like a ship that had sailed a long time ago. But that one, I'm a huge fan of Fortiana and folklore and stuff like that. So, and I, I really, really wanted to set it around the Highgate Vampire case of the late 60s, early 70s. But Mark Wright had actually um, kind of queered that pitch for me by tackling the Highgate Vampire in a Doctor Who comic strip for a Doctor Who magazine. So I thought, well, I can't, okay, I can't do the Highgate Vampire. But the other thing, the other big thing that was kind of very much on my mind when Paul McGann was announced as the Doctor was that he's, he's I, he's, he's Marwood from Withnall and I. So uh, why don't I, I'll do, I'll do the Highgate Vampire but I'll also inject a good bit of Withnell and I in there as well. So I came up with Highgate, who is basically a vampire Withnell, really. So I had the Eighth Doctor kind of going back to uh, to North London to a townhouse to see his old dissolute mate he's not seen in a long time. And at the end, and also the bad guy in that was kind of based on Damien Hirst in a way, because it was set in 1999 on the release date of Sirens of Time. So I had all those, those 90s kind of kind of lad culture loaded touchstones so uh, the bad guy in that is very much kind of a damien hurst 90s lad type guy but um so the eighth doctor saying goodbye to highgate at the end in in highgate cemetery is kind of kind of a mirror of withnall and i saying goodbye by the wolf enclosure in regent's park so that was kind of that and then the, the final part set on this lost moon of batoya which is the Basque word for button. It's button moon. That's my other big association with the fifth doctor. That was just, um, that was, that was my little chance just for a kind of a 
bit of a kind of a compulsory run around because I'd already kind of I'd fixed myself with my ending by that point so that I was kind of limited into what I could kind of do because I kind of had to write the end first but I did get to bring my doctor the seventh doctor in which was great in a little cameo in just in which I just you know I refer because again with the, with the seventh doctor I associate him with you know the gods of Ragnarok and Fenric and Norse mythology and chess so I I've just well he, he was off playing chess with a thunder god so he's been playing he's been playing chess with the uh the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy equivalent of Thor, because Thor's in Hitchhikers. So he, he's been playing, he's been playing, he's you know, he's been playing, he's been playing Scrabble with the Douglas Adams Thor while the rest of this has been going on. That was just kind of my, that's that's where I decided to bung him. And that was it. Those were kind of just, that was my kind of grab bag of inspirations for the end of the beginning. And the funny thing is, if I'd been asked to write it, or start just thinking about writing it a week earlier or a week later, that grab bag would have been different. So um, yeah, it came out the way it did just by virtue of, you know, the particular Thursday I was asked to start thinking about it. And that's how ideas tend to happen. Fantastic, shaped by their environment pretty much. That is brilliant. I, I mean, particularly all the episodes are great, but I think the the Eighth Doctor episode, it just made me smile all the way having lived through the nineties and enjoyed that lad culture and the rise of the ladettes and everything else. And in many ways, I, th I thought, India Fisher absolutely, in many ways, fits it perfectly. But of course, she's playing Charlie rather than India Fisher being herself. And it was just such a lovely mix, just having her in that modern era, modern inverted commas, Charlie, of course, rather than India. And it was just, it was lovely. I think it just the, the banter between her and the Doctor as well. It's, it's just so natural and it felt absolutely authentic to the period of the early 2000s when these were originally released. Well, thanks very much. I must admit, I, I I was the least familiar with the Eighth Doctor and Charlie. I mean, I, I'd listened to a lot of their stuff, but they're the least burned into my brain, if you know what I mean. So, if it came out right, it was kind of instinctive and fortuitous, and probably them being, but India Fisher and Paul McGann being them. But I, I felt I felt like I was kind of winging, winging their relationship because the, the Eighth Doctor is the one I'm kind of least familiar with, for reasons simply because he's the the one who's kind of you know. The one who kind of you know, he he only exists really thanks to to big finish in a, in a, in a long term way. So yeah, so if it if it worked, I'm glad basically. Definitely did. Did you get to sit in on any of the recording sessions? I don't think I got to sit in on that one. I think by that by the time it went into production, we were in lockdown. So I think I got to sit in on my first couple of big finishes, starting with the Paternoster Gang. And I got to sit in on a couple of others where I, just, I was shadowing directors, um, so Nick Briggs and uh, Ken Bentley, on a couple of things like uh, the uh, the Tom Baker's Tom Baker's um, Revenge of the Cybermen or Return of the Cybermen, isn't it? Yeah. So I sat in on a couple, but most of my work I've done with Big Finish has been entirely remote. Sometimes you get to listen on clean feed, but um, yeah, mo um, for for most of my Big Finish career, let's call it, I've been in my room in my pajamas. <laughs> You know, just tuning in via via the internet. It's a fantastic story. I mean, you must have been so excited when you were told download available in your inbox. So, what were your feelings when you got to hear it? Oh, um, when I got to hear the end of the beginning, it was utter delight because I'd just written you know a few suggestions for music cues and stuff like that, and then uh, Wilfredo Acosta just created this beautiful score i remember just for the first part death in the desert which i'd kind of you know so give it an arabic flavor and i said even I'm, I'm in early i may even have suggested a few instruments but wilfredo just 
the score he created, especially for that opening piece, took my breath away and his sound design was incredible. And then all the actors are wonderful. I was particularly impressed by uh, Peter Davison and uh, Mark Strickson in the opening part. I think because, you know, that was just where the, the impact had me was just going going in. But yeah, it was it was utter delight to all the stuff that I had absolutely no involvement in. I think that was kind of it. That's that's usually the rea- the reaction you get when you listen to uh, to something you wrote, but otherwise then kind of uh, left in the hands of other people. Yeah, I, I think you were blessed with an amazing cast. And I think Kevin McNally is that crash. You could not have asked for much better. And David Schofield as Gostak is wonderful as well. He has that sort of is, is, I think oh, yes, yeah. I think that he was—he really got that sort of Barusa kind of feel to him, like being an old teacher of the doctors, and and it really came across that I think he was—he felt absolutely invested in the part, and it and it felt it felt natural, not as if he was actually playing it, but it felt like it was him naturally speaking the words. Oh, he—they uh, they were both wonderful. I mean, I was just spoilt with Kevin McNally and David Scofield. It's, it's the kind of thing you you only find out as a writer when the marketing material is published, you, d- you don't know who's in it, unless you're at the recording, which we haven't been for a while. But um, yeah, so I, I, it was a surprise to me when it was announced. I thought, Lemonac, this is a good cast they've they've got for these. But yeah, they were wonderful. And as and Gostak, he, um, David Schofield, he, um, yeah, he was wonderfully informal with it as well. I think he even improved a couple of bits or reworked a couple of lines just to kind of make it a little bit more... Yeah, he, he he kind of um, helped make Gostak just that little bit more informal with the doctors, as if they'd had that you know that kind of close friendly relationship. So yeah, I was yeah. It's uh, it, the, the casts that Big Finish get though are just staggering. They you know they they manage to uh, get the best actors we have all the time. So it, it's it's always a gift. And hearing the scenes of the doctors having their dialogue with one another. Were they a joy to write? Because they're a joy to listen to. Oh, it was, it was. It's always fun when you get to have the doctors meeting. It was one of those things where, obviously, you know, I, I had to write the end first, so I, I I knew what was what had to happen. And in a way, that's kind of disappointing once I actually got to writing the final episode proper, because having written the first three, I kind of thought, wow, I could have loads of fun doing lots of you know, stuff that I'm not expecting to happen with them. But because I already knew how it had to end up, I felt I felt like I'd, I'd, I'd hobbled myself slightly, only in terms of getting to surprise myself. Again, if I'd, man- if I'd um, written it a week later, the ending would have been a different ending. But I think I could have just quite happily kind of played in my sandbox with uh, the fifth, sixth, seventh and eighth Doctors kind of, you know, having adventures together for much longer than I actually got. And the title, was that yours? Oh, no, the, the title, the end of the beginning, was not mine. I suggested a few titles for it, and uh, David got in touch and said, yeah, those were all lovely, Rob, but how about the end of the beginning? And as soon as he suggested that, and that might have been his suggestion or an idea all along, but as soon as, I, you know, as, soon as he'd said the title, you know, I was going to go with it anyway because he's the producer, it's his, it's, it's his baby and everything but it was the perfect title um and there was there was no alternative that i could suggest that um was more fitting because the important thing at the time i think you know, we're past it now i believe but there was a lot of anxiety when the end of the main range was announced of what the future might hold after that so the ending sorry the end of the beginning is uh it's a declaration of intent it's kind of don't worry don't worry it's not over 
is just starting. So, uh, yeah. So, yeah, there was no title could have been more effective in that regard. Yeah, it's far from being all over, as the first Doctor says, at the end of the Tenth Planet. Do you remember any of the titles you came up with off the top of your head? Um, do I? I don't actually. I, I do remember, because um, I, I do like coming up with titles, so I kind of consoled myself by uh, give, coming up with titles for the other three episodes. So I kind of thought, well, you know, if, um, you know, if the title for the actual the whole thing is fixed, you know, rather than just have part one, part two, part three, part four, damn it, I'm going to, I'm going to, come up with mini titles for the other adventures and kind of give it more of a more of a portmanteau feeling than it might otherwise have had because um to be honest though, i was surprised because I, I gave each episode a title in the script with no expectation that they would then be actually maintained but then when it actually when the other details kind of got published i was i was surprised that they actually stuck with them i was i was i was you know the title's just for me to keep me happy during the writing process because you, you need that sometimes as a writer but yeah so um i don't recall any of the titles i came up with i, I think maybe the stuff of legend might have been one but i they all once i once i heard the end of the beginning they all paled and kind of were quickly forgotten or got recycled because that happens too. That happens oh, too. Yes. You know, if you've got a good title, a good title might be a good title for something else. So uh, yeah, that's that's the other thing. They they're probably still floating around. I may have used some already. I, my memory's terrible. I don't know. You mentioned Wilfredo Acosta earlier. What a fantastic job on the music and sound design. Oh, it, it's it's absolutely wonderful. I keep saying with with the first one, Death in the Desert, the, the music really helps make a lot of it you know and give it that kind of that epic north african kind of middle east sweep um but also down to stuff like when you know when they enter gostak's tardis you know the sound design there just really gives me chills but he he, he, did, he did an incredible job throughout it's just that that first episode really kind of got me um, yeah. but yeah i i haven't um i think i was kind of present on a clean feed recording for for the night for station to station the ninth doctor story but i haven't added i haven't got to meet him and actually say thanks for doing such a good job but i feel i really ought to at some point because i'm just hugely grateful that he kind of brought it to life the way he did did a brilliant job definitely and of course the other gem is that fantastic cover from ryan applin and my favorite thing is when i opened the cd there it was the cover in the style of sirens of time and the original first 15 big finish releases that classic look installed by Gary Russell back in the day. Loved it. Oh, I, I, yes. It, it's great when they do that stuff. It's, 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 it's a real source of delight. Uh, I think it's another reason I kind of want, I was so keen to set the Paul McGann one in 1999. Uh, just because, you know, if you were around then, you know, there is a bit of a, an ache of distance of the passage of time. It's a, it's a kind of a, it's a bit. I mean, nostalgia is lovely, but in, 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 it has its place. But also, it's a kind of a, it's 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 a painful and pleasant emotion as well. And uh, I kind of wanted to uh, to do both things with it. Kind of enjoy looking back that twenty odd years, but also kind of you know suffer the slight pain of the loss of it as well. That was kind of important. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute joy, Rob. Thank you for coming on and, uh, and sharing your memories of bringing a little modern classic to life. 
Oh, thanks, Kenny, very much for asking me. It's been a pleasure. And there we go. Thanks to Rob for taking the time to chat about a brilliant story that was the perfect ending to a great, long and varied line. How did you find this one? Did you enjoy the vampire stuff? Because I know you do like your vampires. I do like some vampires. Vampires are great. Vampires are fun. Vampires are evil. This one wasn't. <laughs> vampires. Yeah, vampires are great. No, no, I know. But vampires in general. Oh, look forward to season five, episode two then, with vampire science. But no, I particularly enjoyed this. I think, in fact, we got um, India Fisher back doing that early Charlie stuff. There's none of the complexities of the web of time and everything that was to follow as they went through their adventures. But I really enjoyed it. I thought India was absolutely on the money and Rob perfectly captured her and the Doctor's voice and their dynamic and their banter. And I absolutely loved it. Yes, so did I. You know how much I love India Fisher. Dan mm-hmm. Paul McGann, so... It's, yeah, it's always. I particularly like the art gallery setting. I think that there's something about vampires and a vampire in an art gallery and a vampire artist. I think that's that's really good fun. It's just it amused me as well. There's just something that um, juxtaposition of something of a creature of the night hunting, looking for blood, but just being creative as well. It's just obviously I'm still very much an old school Dracula. Vampires come out at night. Ha ha ha! We want to drink your blood, <laughs> puny mortals. Type thing. I'm. I'm not. Perhaps an Anne Rice, modern vampire kind of thing. Mm, but, um, not a fan of Anne Rice. No. no. I quite like chicken fried rice, though. <laughs> yes. 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 But yeah, all in all, a great final release. And uh, again, big thanks to Rob for chatting. Indeed. Thank you so much. Uh, remember, if you've enjoyed this week's Pieces of Eight, or indeed liked any episode that we've done previously, please do leave a review for us on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts, as it means more people can find our episodes, and it's always appreciated. We'll be back next time with another trip into Short Trips territory, when we'll be joining Nicola Walker to hear about the world beyond the trees. So until then, there must be no regrets, no tears, no anxieties. Just go forward in all your beliefs and prove to me that I am not mistaken in mine. I've been Kenny Smith and not William Hartnell. A beautiful rendition, but I was Rebecca Chapman. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye.